From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the United Network for Organ Sharing, the organization that manages the transplant system in the U.S., each day more than 100,000 people are waiting for an organ transplant in this country. On today's program, we'll share one woman's story of becoming a living kidney donor and hear from the surgeon who performed the transplant. Also on the program, why cases of ADHD among children are on the rise. And nutrition do's and don'ts. That's this week's program. Organ donation is often referred to as the gift of life, but unfortunately, many people waiting for transplant never get the call saying that a suitable donor organ has been found. It's been estimated that every day in the U.S., 20 patients die because of the lack of donor organs. While organ donation is often thought of as something done after death, living donation is possible with many organs, including kidney, liver, pancreas, and lung. Making the decision to be a living organ donor is an incredible gift, and today we get to share in one of these amazing stories. Joining us are Molly Lumen, a living kidney donor, and Dr. Mark Stiegel, who performed the transplant. Welcome both of you to the program. It's great to have you here. Good morning. Thank you. Let's start off, Dr. Stiegel, with those numbers. Uh, 100,000 people waiting for transplant. That doesn't even seem possible. Uh, just a lot of people who have um, uh, organ failure. The most common is uh, kidney failure. And uh, so I think that it, it's a really a difficult time for patients. They have many years of waiting if they're on the deceased donor list. But if they can get a living donor, they could be transplanted sometimes even before they have to go on dialysis. And that's our goal here. Molly, what, what kind of prompted you to, to get involved in the Living Donor Organ yeah. Program? So one evening, my friend just put a, a plea on Facebook that mm. he was seeking um, a living kidney donor. Wow. He had been waiting for uh, a kidney and a pancreas together, but had been on the transplant waiting list for quite some time. So he put, his, put a, this plea out there. And uh, that evening, I filled out a very simple form. And um, a nurse called me back the next day uh, to begin the process for consideration. So was it part of uh, one of those organ donating ladder type situations or were you able to donate directly to him? I was able to donate directly to him. Wow, that's unusual, or, or isn't it? I mean, I guess I hear through the work that we do here that somebody wants to donate but they can't go directly so then the ladder gets set up. Um, but is this unusual? Uh, no, you're, you're referring to something called kidney-paired donation, mm -hmm. and we have a very robust program here, but we usually save that for people that the original donor didn't work out, mm -hmm. uh, like the blood type didn't match, and we get a lot of referrals here in Rochester of people that have prior transplants, and therefore they've made antibodies against the tissue types, and, mm -hmm. they, and therefore it's find, find, finding them a donor that they don't react against is hard, and so we kind of go trying to pair up compatible donors in that regard. Uh, it's actually turned out to be a, a, a big part of what we're doing now. It's about a third of the transplants that we wow. do. Wow. And uh, we uh, have a very robust program with the three Mayo sites. Mm -hmm. um, everybody gets up really early in the morning, does a donor, and puts it on an airplane and sends it up here. We can send one to Arizona or Florida, and we can do it uh, later on the afternoon. But many times, most of the time, we really um, uh, prefer using donors that are you know, uh, compatible and, and have some, some emotional attachment uh, brothers and sisters are common, um, uh, and uh, living unrelated donors like uh, uh, Molly was are, are pretty common. Too. How um, long ago did this happen, Molly? It was five years ago last week. 
My goodness, that's a big mm-hmm. that's a big anniversary. Mm-hmm. And what did your friends say? Did you did you comment on Facebook and say, no. "Oh, I might be interested"? I mean, what Not did your friends say when he f- heard what you were up to? I kept it really low key um, until I had the final approval. He knew everyone who was going through the process except one person, and that was me. Wow. So uh, when I got the final approval, I had to tell him, and yeah, that was kind of emotional because he knew everyone except me, and um, it worked out well at the end result, but um, yeah, it was a big surprise for him. So the other people that were trying to help him were not good matches or what happened? I believe that I was just the better match of the other four people. Mm -hmm. So um, what Molly mentioned is actually really true. So there's, um, it's kind of a difficult process, but we really try to keep the donor and the recipient process separate. And um, so there's a whole group of people actually who work on the donor and the whole group work on the recipient. And uh, actually, uh, there are ways for us to have the donor never, uh, the recipient never find out who the donor is in, in, with the pair donor ever. Uh, actually, it's kept a secret if the if the donor does not want that information shared. Yeah. Uh, and that's important because if someone's moving along and wants to be a donor and then they don't work out, that can be kind of hard feelings. Uh, so it's important. It's 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 kind of a difficult situation, but we've worked out the details uh, yeah. about keeping the uh, patient confidentiality of the donor uh, separate from that of the recipient, and we can do that. And uh, but it, then if the donor decides they want to uh, say sure, you know, tell them everything, then we can you know get them together and do that. Which circumstance do you usually find that you're in that the people know each other or that they want to remain anonymous? I think most people uh, know each other. It's, mm-hmm. it's most common. Um, yeah. Uh, there are times that you're talking about people who are, who are just who are called altruistic donors. Is, well, every every donor is altruistic, but this is a specific type of person who doesn't really know the recipient, but's willing to donate to pretty much anyone who's in need. Those are actually really helpful to uh, us uh, because uh, we can take what the the uh, donor has and possibly find the perfect uh, person for them, not just their brother or sister. Right. There might be somebody out there who's really looking for the, the tissue type match, whatever. And for these pairs, the altruistic donors really help um, start the uh, the uh, the chain of pairs. But most people know each other. Um, actually, uh, and most donors are pretty comfortable about uh, uh, donating and. Uh, we're just really make sure that's safe. But I think most donors feel it's like one of the best things they've ever done in their lives. It's one of these unassailably good things. Nobody can ever say you didn't do one good thing for anybody else after you've donated a kidney. And uh, it's great. And our job here is to make it as safe as, uh, as we can make it. What sort of, you know, this sounds like an incredible opportunity, particular, but there are so many people waiting for transplant. What other organs or tissues can be donated from a living donor? Kidney and liver are the most common. By far. And even liver, it's a bigger deal. A kidney donor, we've done more than uh, 3,000 laparoscopic donor nephrectomies here, which is the surgery we use. It's done sort of a laparoscopic approach. We have about the base experience of anybody uh, on the planet, I think, with this. And uh, donating other organs is a little bit more uh, invasive, and there's a lot more thought goes into uh, appropriateness of the donor and the recipient. Liver is just a piece of the liver, but it's a bigger surgery than what we do. It has a higher complication rate. Donating an entire lung, that sounds like a big deal it is. Uh, and relatively few places do this partial pancreas uh, mm-hmm. donor. It's really kind of fallen out of favor because there are enough, the, the pancreas transplant, there are enough donors for pancreases that you really don't, there's not a real need for a living donor pancreas transplant. 
But uh, no, living donor uh, kidney, there are some countries that have very poor uh, deceased donor allocation systems, and the only way you can get a living donor, the only way you can get a kidney transplant is to get a living donor. Hmm. Molly, you had said that you uh, went in for testing and Mm -hmm. found out that you were the one that was the best match. What kind of testing did you have to go through? It was probably a day and a half, Um, you know, basic blood collection, urine collection. I had to do um, a... 18 hour blood pressure monitor where you wear this cuff for 18 hours and then every so often um, it takes your blood pressure. Everybody hates that. (laughs) It is infuriating. (laughs) It's maddening because you have to sleep with it on but when it starts to go off you you immediately stop and try to get calm and I think I broke most of the blood vessels in my arm from that device. So yeah, a, a variety of testing, very easy. Um, but that's, I was say, that's quite remarkable. You're talking about donating an organ from your body yeah. and you had a day and a half of tests. I mean, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people go through it a day and a half of tests just for annual physicals <laughs> and colonoscopies. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you're doing, yeah. you know, right. for other people. I mean, that's a really remarkable process. Yeah, but a day and a half of testing in Mayo Clinic is a lifetime of testing most <laughs> of the places. And so uh, it's so efficient we can get uh, yeah. people through the system that quickly. It's, it's like dog years. We've been talking about organ donation with living kidney donor Molly Lumen and Dr. Mark Stiegel, her surgeon here at Mayo Clinic. Let's talk about that surgery. How long does a kidney transplant take? I think it was 90 minutes. It wasn't very long at all. You're kidding. Mm-mm. 90 minutes and you're and in And I don't recovery. remember any of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's typical? Yeah, it's, um, well, it's, it's like flying to Chicago. There's like an hour to get uh, set up and then there's actual flights only uh, half an hour or so. <laughs> but you spend half a day doing it. That's kind of what it really is. Um, but no, the surgery, there's some technical demanding aspects of the surgery, but um, usually I think that, you know, if you done 3,000 like we have. Uh, most of their group here can do it in an hour or two for sure. How long does it take to transplant the kidney? About the same, with the same issues, uh, about getting started and, and waking up after surgery. It's about an hour, hour and a half of surgery to do. What was the uh, day of surgery like? What was that whole process like for you? Well, you got here pretty early, and I work in the transplant center beside Bean. You this do? Th- I do. So when I got wheeled in, and we're in the operative suite. The, these are my friends who are all around me. And many of them had their faces covered so I couldn't see their faces easily. And they're like, we didn't know we had a superstar in here today. And I was like, oh my gosh. And all I kept thinking about is, who's gonna cath me? Because these are all my friends. That's what I was thinking. And Dr. Heimbach was just at the computer going through the scans. I was watching her, she was clicking through a variety of things. No one was talking to her, but everyone was you know, putting the the, the stickers all over me and, and making sure that I was calm and ready to do it. And it, it was very, very calm, very serene the morning of. And how many of them have said, now you've made it so that the rest of us all have to donate? Oh my gosh, none of them have said that. None <laughs> of them have said that, but um, I'd no. say you set that bar pretty it's high. Pretty, they pretty can all try. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a safe feeling when your friends are in there and you know that mm-hmm. you're in good hands. And um, yeah, it was, it was a great feeling. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, Dr. Stiegel and Molly, this is really a remarkable place in that you have so much institutional practice and memory. And so that feeling of calm, Mm -hmm. feeling that you're at a place that Mm -hmm. not only do you work, but you feel comfortable Mm because you know the experience level. What what is that? What is the recovery like? You know, you mentioned how how straightforward, obviously, Mm -hmm. this is a complicated procedure, but how well Mayo is is doing at that. How how is the recovery like for you? And and what was your experience afterwards? You're in the hospital for um, like a day and a half and then you're dismissed. And I think my recovery was probably 
really three to four weeks and then I had an extra two to be extra safe. You can't lift much for the first week and a half, but when you go from being really active and to suddenly you can't lift a half gallon of milk, I mean, that's That's kind of impedes your life a little bit. Um, My husband was a great nurse and took great care of me and was around and um, yeah, you go to a screeching halt when you're in recovery. Some of the smallest things of like how you get out of bed normally is radically different. You have to do this log roll out Hmm. because of where your stitches are um, in your abdomen. So um, when you wake up, you have to remember what to do. And I wake up, I woke up most mornings feeling great. Um, There were two mornings where I forgot I had donated and I jumped out of bed in a way that I shouldn't and that was quite painful but my recovery was very easy very streamlined. So how has um, it how has it affected your job? If you it, work in the transplant center yeah. it must make a big difference. It does but it doesn't, you know. Now I can when I when I hear other people going through the process, you know, I kind of give up a small affirmation for them and wish them the best of luck on on that journey. But I realize it's a, it's a pretty big surgery and it's not for everyone if you um yeah, it's it's not definitely not for everyone. I would imagine you've had other people ask you um, because they're curious about doing this themselves. Yeah, I've had a lot of that. Mm-hmm. A lot so, of people reach out to me. Yeah, what do they want to know? Um, how does it hurt afterwards? The pain meds, how they manage that afterwards, okay. which I felt like Mayo did a, a great job um, with that. A lot of people ask about the emotional um, implications afterwards. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, the the recipients get a lot of attention and what does the donor get afterwards? And I think every situation is unique. I, I never went after it for any type of affirmation or, or um, public awareness and it kind of accidentally fell in my lap as word started getting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. What has this done for transplant surgery, just the living donor program in general, Dr. Stiegel? How, how has that changed the way you practice? And so um, here in Rochester, about 70, 80% of our recipients actually are recipients of living donors. Uh, we have a unique practice, and I think it's because um, we uh, all support living donors a lot. We also uh, maybe take more complicated uh, donors than some places might. Um, uh, and I think just the whole program, Molly's a good example from uh, – uh, at every level of the program, there is this acceptance that living donation is the appropriate way to go. Um, and so I think that it definitely uh, simplifies the process for the recipient. Um, half of the uh, patients that we do actually never have to go on dialysis, which is really a remarkable thing. Huge. Uh, it's um, also, it's the best thing for the patient. The kidneys last longer, they work right off the bat. It allows us to take more complicated patients. If we know the kidney part of it's going to work, uh, then we can uh, handle some of the other issues uh, that the patient might have. Um, so it definitely, um, uh, it, it's, it's the kind of situation I think that um, most of us would do. Uh, I think that uh, donors, um, uh, I think the happiest day of their life is the day that they wake up after the surgery uh, when they're just alive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, if I remember correctly, Molly was ready to go home on the d- first day after surgery. I think I, I kind of made her angry when I said, maybe she should stay one more day. That is true. Uh, she was, I still never brings that up, but I think she still holds that against me. <laughs> but, uh, but overall, I think, you know, our, our situation is that uh, we've, we really have made it as safe as possible uh, for uh, someone to donate. We definitely let people do a lot crazier things um, uh, than donating a kidney, like uh, smoking cigarettes, riding a motorcycle without a helmet, and a few things like that. And um, people really do get a great benefit uh, from the surgery. 
Um, so, um, you know, I think that Molly can feel that, you know, she really has done something great. And this, the downside for the recipients, it's really hard to show that using the criteria for selection that we have here in Mayo, like the 18-hour blood pressure monitor nobody likes to wear, it's really hard to show that there's really any health, um, uh, really decrement in anybody's health of being a donor. Yeah. You have to really, really look hard and a long time. And that's our, uh, that's our goal is to make sure that the benefit the recipient gets um, uh, is, uh, is justifies the donation. Lastly, we have actually helped a lot more donors than ever hurt because getting that complete evaluation is uh, a really, uh, really great physical. Yeah. And we found amazing things in, um, in uh, donors. I have a friend who received a kidney, and it was impressive how instantly he felt better. I mean, upon waking up from that surgery, and that's pretty typical, it sounds like. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, a lot of people will say, oh, I, don't, I feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I'm going to feel that much different. And almost to a person, when almost when they come out of the operating room, they feel warmer. I don't know if it's the 500 milligrams of steroids we give them, but, uh, <laughs> but no, it, it's really amazing. Kidney transplantation puts people back to a level of function they haven't been for several years. And actually, being on dialysis has a mortality rate that's higher than most uh, cancers these days. Mm-hmm. Five-year survival on dialysis may be only 70%, and that's lower than metastatic breast cancer is today. So kidney transplantation is a life-saving procedure, and Molly certainly helped a specific uh, individual that I knew on dialysis would have a very low survival rate. So what she did was a uh, truly a life-saving um, uh, uh, thing because uh, kidney transplantation is or kidney failure is not seen as a life-threatening illness, but it really is. And finally, how can people become organ donors? Molly, what do you tell people? What should they do? To become an organ donor? Yes. There is a great website called registerme.org. It's a national website. It takes, if even, one minute to fill out. If they haven't already done it on their driver's license, registerme.org. We've been hearing about the important story of being an organ donor from Molly Lumen and her surgeon, Dr. Mark Stiegel. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the rise in ADHD among children, and later on in the show, some nutrition do's and don'ts. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Almost three-quarters of American homes have at least one pet in them, mostly dogs and cats. But four-legged family members can make life tough for kids who are allergic to pets. Dr. Anna Pumaravi says it depends on an individual's genetic predisposition. So, if a child has significant eczema, he or she might be at a slight increased risk of developing a pet allergy. Dr. Ravi says most of those pet allergy symptoms can be treated with over-the-counter antihistamines or, in more severe cases, prescription antihistamines. In extreme cases, kids might need to get allergy shots. They help because they show the immune system a small amount of the allergen and slowly desensitize it by increasing the amount slowly with time. Dr. Ravi says it's also helpful to use high-efficiency particulate air, or HEPA, filters if you have a cat, and to vacuum your home regularly. But Dr. Ravi doesn't ever tell patients to get rid of their pets. She says the physical and emotional benefits pets can offer children far outweigh the problems allergies might cause. 
And in other news, how many times have you rummaged through drawers in your pockets because you can't remember where you put the car keys? Does forgetfulness when you're young mean you'll get Alzheimer's disease later? Well, Dr. Ronald Peterson says those who have less memory facility early in life may be more predisposed to developing the disease later on. But again, you could do things about that. There are some modifiable learning techniques that may be beneficial. The National Academy of Sciences report describes three things you can do to help ward off Alzheimer's disease. Keep your mind active, control blood pressure, and do aerobic exercises. Dr. Peterson also says getting adequate sleep and eating a heart-healthy diet that includes fruits, veggies, whole grains, lean meats, low-fat dairy and fat such as olive oil may help as well. So the next time you're searching for your keys, glasses, or the remote, remember that you can take steps to help improve memory now and as you age. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McCray. A new study recently found that the number of children diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, commonly known as ADHD, has increased dramatically in the United States. As reported in JAMA Network Open, the number of children diagnosed with ADHD rose from 6.1% in 1997 to 10.2% 10 by 2016. Greater awareness of the condition may be one factor, but what else is contributing to the rise in ADHD cases? Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Michael Zaccarello. Welcome to the program, Dr. Zaccarello. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, is there more ADHD or are we just getting better at finding it or are people just more aware of it in general? You know, in, in reference to the study, um, I think the authors understandably highlight some issues with that. The way that I, ADHD was identified in the study was simply asking parents if a doctor had ever suggested that their a child had ADHD or ADD. Um, I submit to you that that's probably not the more common way to diagnose the disorder. Um, certainly there is greater awareness than there was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and so with greater awareness means a higher rate of diagnosis, certainly. The other issue too is that as medical care has become much better, um, children who in the past had very complex medical conditions very, very early in life or during delivery, for example, um, may not have survived but are now surviving. Oh. But they may be at higher risk for developing neurobehavioral disorders such as ADHD. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that option. What's the difference between ADHD and ADD? Great question. <laughs> so um, the current diagnostic nosology or classification term is basically there's three different types of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. The first is ADHD combined type, which is a combination of individuals that have a significant number of hyperactive or impulsive symptoms. In addition, they also have a high number of inattentive or distractible symptoms. The second is um, ADHD primarily hyperactive type, which are those individuals that have more of the hyperactive impulsive um, behaviors and not so much with the inattention or distractibility. And then we have ADHD inattentive type. And so these are um, individuals who have more of the inattentive distractible issues and not so much with the hyperactivity and impulsiveness. ADD is actually an old term, okay. um, but using 
current definitions falls under the inattentive type is how mm-hmm. I would characterize that. It's interesting. You know, you wonder about the the recognition. I think you brought this up of are people just recognizing it more. I also hear parents, you know, just in friend groups, use it almost uh, in a casual term, like, "Oh yeah, my my kid's got a little ADD or a little ADHD." Do, do you see that um, when we think about the actual diagnosis that might require behavioral interventions or medication interventions or both? What are those signs and symptoms that parents, rather than just thinking, "Oh, my kid's a little off the wall today," it might actually be a pattern that that needs uh, further investigation? Great question. The Behaviors or the issues in ADHD are typically noticed early in development. And you should be looking for such issues as your child having difficulty sustaining their focus or attention on activities. Are they easily distracted? Do they have great difficulty sitting still? Are they constantly on the move? Do they not think before they act to the point that it raises safety concerns? Are they running in the middle of the street? That sort of thing. So certainly there's a constellation of behaviors that obviously defines ADHD. I think the question that is also very, very important when it comes to diagnosing this disorder is do these things, do these issues with inattention and distractibility, do these things with hyperactivity and impulsiveness cause significant impairment in daily life? That is a key question. Because I used, you know, we can use terms like inattention Mm -hmm. and distraction, but if I would tell you that your child has excessive imagination, just changing that terminology right. kind of yeah. changes how you perceive mm-hmm. the disorder. So the significant impairment piece, I think, is very, very key. It, well, because it infers that it's something that needs to be fixed. Right. Yes, yes. Right. absolutely. Absolutely. Are there uh, known risk factors? Certainly. So um, in, in kids with ADHD typically have different brains, to be really, really basic. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are certain brain structures that are not as well-developed Um, as children that do not have ADHD. There are certain nerve circuits um, in the brain that are not functioning as efficiently as we would like, Mm -hmm. hence the need for medications to kind of address the nerve circuit issue. There are certain environmental um, factors that play a role. Sure. Um, Poor prenatal care, for Mm. example. Um, High family stress dynamic puts one at higher risk, not Mm -hmm. necessarily causing ADHD, but certainly puts it higher risk. And there's also a genetic link um, so if you have a first-degree relative, a parent that has been diagnosed with this disorder, it puts you at higher risk for also being diagnosed with ADHD. You're highlighting some important pieces that these people might be at higher risk, but the significant impairment piece, because there Absolutely. are a lot of people who are quite functional, who who live, lead very successful lives with, uh, with diagnoses of ADHD. <laughs> they found a world of broadcasting and, and flourish. Many yes. things. We won't <laughs> name names. Right. And what I'm, what I'm curious about is, um, even though you can be very successful, and, and often p- people are very successful, what are those things that, um, that parents can be thinking about to put their kid on, on a successful track, either with interventions or even just thinking, is this something that they'll outgrow? Um, good question. So in terms of, so what I hear you saying is, you know, what's the identification and the treatment p- piece? And then mm-hmm. second, you know, do they outgrow it? Um, I guess I'll add, answer the second <clears throat> question first. So if someone does have ADHD, um, a general trajectory is if they have hyperactive or impulsive symptoms, those tend to wane as they grow older. They tend to dissipate. Mm-hmm. But typically the inattentive or the distractible symptoms persist. Mm. Now, as someone ages, um, they can potentially learn skills to kind of address those things without the use of medication. Um, and so that's certainly um, an option as well. 
in terms of what can parents um, be looking out for or if they're concerned, obviously talk with your pediatrician or primary care physician. Um, in my experience, um, these physicians have much greater awareness of ADHD and also how to screen for it. Um, and the screening typically takes the form of a form or a checklist um, completed by a caregiver, but also kind of a secondary informant. And what I mean by that is it could be a school teacher, could be a daycare, depending on the mm -hmm. age of the child, to see if there's a presence of these symptoms in two or more settings, because that's also another important mm. criteria. Yeah. Um, you know, kids- Not just in math class. Exactly. Yes. Kids are ADHD <laughs> right. all the time, right? They're not ADHD at home mm -hmm. and, you know, and then not at school. Um, so that's an important thing. But then again, also the significant impairment. I want to keep highlighting that. Yeah. I want to ask about behavior modifications, because as the mom, I just know that sugar and sleep, the two S's, are big factors that right. contribute to this. So in terms of diet, you know, I've heard, I've heard the sugar, mm -hmm. um, I've heard about red dyes, I've heard about carbohydrates. Taken as a whole, the literature does not suggest mm -hmm. that diet leads to ADHD. That doesn't mean that there are certain individual kids where it could have a pronounced issue, but taken as a whole, this is what the science is telling us. Sleep, on the other hand, is a whole different ball of wax. Um, there's very compelling evidence that adequate sleep heightens or strengthens kind of cognitive skills. Mm. And that if you have poor sleep, that leads to issues down the road. So you might have someone who has chronic poor sleep um, that looks ADHD, but if we get them on a good sleep pattern, mm -hmm. those symptoms tend to dissipate. I don't know about you, but if I get a night of poor sleep, it certainly affects me the next day. Right. Yeah, there are people who will say, oh, my kid's not a good sleeper because he's just so crazy ADHD. Mm -hmm. I'm like, mm -hmm. it's kind of maybe the other way around. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Great point. Great point. We've been talking about ADHD in children with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Michael Zaccarello. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. When it comes to nutrition and dieting, the internet can be a confusing place. Oof. One website touts the benefits of coconut oil, while another calls it pure poison. And dieting, should I fast or should I eat a high-fat diet or a low-carb diet or low-carb diet and high-fat diet? It, it's kind of <laughs> nuts. You can find information that seems to support just about any position you want to take, which, to be fair, is probably why the Internet was designed to exist. While it's true that what we know about nutrition and diet is always evolving, there are still nutrition basics that hold true. And here to help us sort things out is Mayo Clinic specialist in nutrition and preventive medicine, Dr. Donald Hensrud. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Hensrud. It's great to see you. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> Whenever we have uh, diet freakouts in the news, <laughs> we call Dr. Hensrud and we say, is it true that coconut oil is pure poison? Like many things, the truth lies somewhere in between. Okay. Well, what's Which, wrong with coconut oil? Well, it's been promoted to be a, a good saturated fat. Mm -hmm. The major saturated fat in coconut oil is lauric acid. Saturated fats differ. Some are long, some are short. Lauric is kind of in the middle. And people say, well, it doesn't uh, affect cholesterol values in the blood as much as other long-chain fatty acids. Uh, partially true. It doesn't raise LDL, ba the bad cholesterol, as much as long-chain fatty acids. However, good studies show that it still raises it a little bit. Okay. It's also been suggested that it may have an effect, a beneficial effect on HDL cholesterol. In recent years, HDL isn't quite as important as what we used to think when we try and manipulate it through drugs and, and diets. So uh, the bottom line is it's not poison, but it does raise LDL cholesterol a little bit in well-controlled studies and still may uh, increase the risk of heart disease you know, slightly, but not as much as other saturated fats. 
The other issue is all of the other things they say about coconut oil. It's going to improve your skin. It's going to do this. I like data, and there isn't a lot of data for a lot of those things out there. So does that mean, is, is this, the old teaching still probably the same, that um, some of the oils seen in the Mediterranean diets, like olive oil or other types? So where do we go then for fats that we need in our diet to some degree? But how do, how do we make a more informed choice? The basics still apply, and we've known about the basics of fatty acids for many years. Saturated fats raise LDL cholesterol, and they're mainly found in animal products such as meat, high-fat dairy products, uh, ice cream, things like that. And trans fatty acids, which we're phasing out of the food supply, also raise LDL cholesterol, and they lower HDL, or good cholesterol. The beneficial fats are unsaturated fats. Monounsaturated fats found in olive oil, canola oil, avocados, nuts, and polyunsaturated fats found in different vegetable oils. Avocado oil. Have you tried that yet? Actually, I have tried oh, avocado oil. delicious. Although they were potato chips fried in avocado oil, so I'm not sure <laughs> I got the benefit. So yeah. uh, let's talk about fasting. Is there any benefit at all to fasting? It's really interesting. Again, we like to focus on data. Short-term studies suggest, and there are different types of fasting. Like many different diets, there's all kinds of ways of doing it. In the UK, a 5-2 diet is very popular where you fast a couple days a week on a, on a low-calorie intake. It does have short-term metabolic benefits in the body. Insulin levels are lower. Uh, triglycerides can lower a little bit. So there are some short-term benefits. Like many things, we don't know the long-term effects. Some people say, well, that's the way we've eaten throughout history, that we would you know, go for fast periodically when food was scarce. Mm-hmm. Not sure I totally buy that. That doesn't necessarily make it uh, the, the best thing to do. Uh, short-term benefit, but we need long-term studies to see what the results are. Personally, I get a little ornery when I fast, and I couldn't oh do gosh. it. But <laughs> so hangry. So, so it, it gets down to practicality, <laughs> too. Uh, if it fits with some people and they want to try it. The bottom line on all these things, though, I tr- we know some, some things about nutrition, and those hold true. Eat a plant-based diet, lots of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, beans, those kinds of things, healthy fats, olive oil, nuts, and you'll, you'll, you'll do well in terms of health overall. And it, and it seems a lot of these diets that I that I see and, and hear about from whether it's from patients or whether it's from friends, it, it all, a lot of it seems to come down to sustainability. How do you, it might be great for that 30 days that you're doing something, but then all of a sudden what happens after day 30? Um, how, how do you counsel patients about diet and when they're excited about something? How do you harness that excitement to, to make it sustainable? Well, it, it, like you make a really good point. Things People can do things short term, but we emphasize lifestyle changes, not going on a diet per se. Mm-hmm. If you go on a diet, you're going to go off a diet. Mm-hmm. It's just, and many of them aren't sustainable. They're they're very uh, onerous. They're tough to implement on a practical basis. Uh, sometimes they're not even enjoyable. So <laughs> right. it should be practical, enjoyable. Uh, follow what we know about good nutrition, and I'd suggest, despite all the confusion out there, we still know some basic things and and go to reputable sources to find those those uh, tenants out and apply those in your life long term, but you have to enjoy what you eat too. A few of the gals that I run with are into a ketogenic diet, and I don't even know what it means. So ketogenic diets are very low-carb diets. It's a, it's a kind of on one end of the spectrum of low-carbohydrate diets because to get into ketosis, you have to really reduce your carbohydrate intake below 50 grams, sometimes down to 20 grams a day. It's very low intake. The body produces ketone bodies when we break down fat, 
And so one of the advantages is you're breaking down fat, you're producing ketone bodies that may cause a little bit of decrease in appetite, also lower insulin levels, et cetera. The problem is, once again, staying on it long-term, and the long-term effects probably aren't as good as a more moderate diet. Really good article that was published last year that looked at uh, carbohydrate intake in the diet related and animal versus plant uh, protein. What they found was they looked in the United States and around the world, and no surprise, if you went on a very low-carb diet or a very high-carb diet, there was associated with increased mortality. Hmm. They had a lot of power to detect this. They also found, not surprisingly, that when you substituted plant protein for animal protein, that was associated with lower mortality. So a moderate carbohydrate intake seems to be kind of the sweet spot uh, along with plant products. What we emphasize on the Mayo Clinic diet are healthy carbs and healthy fats. You don't need to go to extremes. Uh, Incorporate some healthy carbs, brown rice, oatmeal, whole grain pasta, whole wheat bread, things like that. You don't need large amounts, but incorporate some of those things and then the healthy fats that we've already talked about. When it comes to uh, beverages, there was a CDC report out recently that showed that for youth, well, I guess the good news is they drank a lot of water when it came to teenagers, but the bad news was that um, they also drink a lot of soft drinks, which shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. It was 20% of the beverages that they're drinking are soft drinks. Is that unusual? Uh, soft drinks, especially ones that contain sugar, are like liquid candy. Mm-hmm. I, I look at sugar-containing soft drinks. Sugar in general is kind of a quadruple whammy. It has no nutritional value. It provides excess calories. To metabolize carbohydrate in the body, you need to get vitamins from other sources, such as thiamine, so you're robbing the body, you're using other things, and it has direct toxic effects. Dental caries, There was a study published a few years ago uh, that uh, sugar does seem to be related to cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the worst things we can do. Um, To illustrate how much sugar is in soda, in a 20-ounce soda, there are 17 teaspoons of sugar. And I challenge people to to get a sugar container and and (laughs) try to eat that much sugar. Try and eat that sugar. So um, the good news is we're drinking a lot of water. The bad news is we're drinking the same amount of soda as milk among our, among our children, and so we need to kind of keep working on that, and water's the best. Well, we've been debunking some diet myths and getting sound nutritional advice from Dr. Donald Hensrud, a nutrition and preventive medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Hensrud. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. Jake Strand, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.